Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Wise. Lou, how are you doing today? I am hot as hell here. It's about 100 degrees in New Jersey, uh, but you're in Atlanta, so it must be even worse. No, actually, it's a chilly 91. Ah, got it. Understood. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, pretty, it's been pretty humid here the last couple of days. Uh, however, it is, you don't hear too many people in our office and studios here complaining about the cold air conditioner that we have on. Um, so that, that being said, let's uh, let's kick this bugger off, and uh, we're going to talk about our postscript from uh, last week's show, uh, just so our current listeners could uh, uh, reflect back on what we did last week and might prove to be interesting to some. We had uh, the president, Mike uh, Edelstein, who is of the Potomac Photonic Company, and they, they have a kind of an interesting uh, product. They make holes. They drill holes. And they can drill tiny, tiny little holes. Uh, matter of fact, they even told us that in the new up-and-coming cars of the future, you'll have metal dashboards and you'll see nothing, but there are tiny little holes that when the lights come on to give you some information like your speed or what have you, the light will come through the holes and you'll be able to see it. But when the lights aren't on, you don't see the holes. So they're pretty small. And they can do 25,000 holes in a minute. So that's uh, that's pretty interesting uh, stuff. The point, however, about the, why they were on the show was about the fact that they integrated new technology and old technology and um, so that they could curb their expenses and uh, build uh, build a business based on both technologies and to train their people in the old and the new technologies. And uh, they're not a big company. They're about 25, 30 employees. But it's a pretty interesting uh, uh, story that they have. And I would suggest that uh, you go and to mfgtalkradio.com and look at uh, last week's episode. We also had uh, Chad Moutre, the chief economist of the National Association of Manufacturers, on our show, giving us, uh, giving us his perspective of Brexit. And uh, also uh, his uh, newsletter that comes out every Monday called the Monday Economic Report that I actually raced to the office to get here on Monday mornings to get the report which talks all about the, the previous week's events going on in our country, manufacturing, our economy, and so on. It's a, it's a great read, um, and I strongly recommend that you go to nam.org and sign up and get that uh, uh, newsletter sent to you. Uh, that said, we have a couple of news items. Uh, one in particular is really mind-blowing. The Panama Canal this past week finally opened up and their first oversized ship went through the new wider canal that is not quite as wide as it needs to be. Uh, 
And as a result, there was a gash in the side of the ship, and there was a uh, damage done to the concrete wall of the canal itself. And I've been there, and I've seen it. And I've seen ships scraping along. And when they scrape metal on concrete, and you're there, it is loud. It's like, it's like fingernails on a blackboard. You would have thought after 14 years of construction, design, and implementation that somebody would have gotten it right. So as part, it seems like some of our federal folly stories that Tim and I do once in a while uh, about how our government screws up. But this, uh, this one uh, is the Panamanian government. So we weren't there to help them, so they didn't do the right job. Second story, uh, which really is uh, really quite incredible, it's, it's called Solar Impulse 2. It's about an airplane that has gone around the world without a drop of fuel. It took 17 legs of a trip, landing, taking off, landing, and taking off. It took a year. It's not exactly the fastest way to get around the world, but it's cheap. Um, because there was no fuel. It was pure solar. Uh, this was the brainchild of a Swiss engineer, Bertrand Picard, and uh, they are developing this so that at some point in the future they will be able to use uh, solar in certain aspects of commercial airliners. Uh, this airplane uh, actually weighed about the same as a standard size SUV with the wingspan, Get this, of a 747, 72 meters. So between solar and lift, they were able to go around the world without an ounce of fuel. I thought it was kind of an interesting story, and I hope you enjoyed it. Tim? Thanks, Lou. Yeah, I thought the Panama Canal was particularly interesting since they left a large gash in the side of yeah. the ship. <clears throat> Not very well designed, but oops. Today we're going to be talking about this is one. This is one of the big ships, one of the new big ships. Okay. The new, very expensive big ships. Correct. (laughs) Well, today we're going to be talking with two guests. We have an interesting topic. We're going to be kind of talking about a slice of it in a in a broader topic. And really, the topic is about our how are females being prepared for the new economy? Are they being prepared equally with their male counterparts? Part of which is going to be a discussion of uh, high school training for work in blue-collar communities. Our first guest is Amanda Fosky. She is a graduate student in sociology and a population research center trainee at the University of Texas at Austin. She also holds a Juris Doctorate from Loyola University Chicago School of Law. No small shakes there. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, you co-authored a paper with April Sutton and Chandra. Is the last name Muller, is that correct? Yes. Okay, and that paper is Manufacturing Gender Inequality in the New Economy, High School Training for Work in Blue-Collar Communities. And before I get to that paper and you, Amanda, I'd like to introduce Haley Stevens, who's Associate Director of Workforce Development, Digital Manufacturing and Design Innovation Institute, where she develops regional and national programs to support the training and education of current and future workers in digital manufacturing technologies and processes. Haley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. 
Well, we're good to have you. Uh, Amanda, if you could give our uh, listeners just kind of a quick overview of what uh, the purpose of the study was that you and your co-authors accomplished. Sure. Um, so we were kind of motivated by this, you know, a lot of recent legislative pushes to bring back, you know, vocational training and to train people for mid-skill jobs that don't require a college degree. And this has kind of been a pushback against the, you know, idea that everyone needs to go to college to get a good job. But, you know, in fact, there are these good blue-collar jobs out there that um, need vocational training. And so one part that we wanted to bring to it is this discussion of gender and how gender plays into this vocational training and looking at whether, you know, boys and girls benefit equally from, you know, a push for more vocational training in light of the idea that a lot of these blue-collar jobs are incredibly male-dominated fields. We kind of wanted to look at whether or not then you know, women, you know, how they fare whenever schools focus on this kind of vocational training. And we did find that, you know, in these areas where more vocational training was being offered for these blue-collar jobs, that women tended to suffer in the labor market, whereas the men um, did quite well. And so that's, we really want to bring this idea of, you know, keeping gender in mind when we're talking about um, the kind of training that's required for jobs. Well, it certainly is a challenge because I know years and years ago when I went to uh, high school, they had shop classes in high school and they had home ec in high school. And then over the course of the last 20 years, they kind of blew those out. Uh, now they're discovering that they need to bring them back so everybody's in a scramble. Um, mm-hmm. But you were focusing on blue-collar communities, Amanda. I don't know if you have the number off the top of your head, but do you know how many – blue-collar communities we're talking about across the country? Because this was a national study, right? Yeah, it was a national study, and the way we defined it was actually by percentiles. So um, we ranked um, counties based on the percentage of their workers that work in blue-collar jobs. Um, And so we, you know, defined blue-collar communities as the top 25%. So if we look at, you know, what percentage of the local labor markets in blue-collar work, the top 25% is what we kind of defined as blue-collar communities. And these are places where, you know, 40 to 60% of their labor market is, you know, in blue-collar work. And so that's okay. kind of how, how we defined it. So it's not – there's not a set, you know – I don't know the, top, the number off the top of my head, but we're talking about uh, a quarter of the counties in the U.S. Okay. Makes sense. Haley, let me go to you for just a moment. I'd like you to give our audience kind of a feel for the Digital Manufacturing and Design Innovation Institute and what you do for those folks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So DMDII, the Digital Manufacturing and Design Innovation Institute, is a division of UI Labs. Uh, We are headquartered in Chicago, but we operate as a national institute focused on digitizing U.S. manufacturing. And in my job, 
uh, uh, serving as director of workforce development and education outreach along with uh, the manufacturing engagement pieces to kind of look at the future of work and the definition of job roles within the digital manufacturing and design space and, and what this means for companies and training providers alike. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, the vocational uh, training programs uh, have sort of become a thing of the past in that, you know, 20 years ago, we had a lot more um, high schools that were supported with training programs hands-on and, and that we're not seeing that today. And that's an absolutely something, not that I have run a, a great study um, like Amanda, but that I, um, you know, have certainly uh, I've, I've heard firsthand from our, our regional members as well as as local members that we, you know, have um, a kind of a, a gap in terms of onboarding um, uh, would-be manufacturers into um, into training opportunities and into um, oftentimes what's referred to as a pipeline, although I, I don't like the pipeline term. But I, I can say this, you know, I'm not specifically dedicated to gender by writ of my job, but um, certainly pay attention to that and, and recognize the, the facts and the figures that surround our reality, which is, you know, 27% of, 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 of the manufacturing workforce is comprised of women, although women make up 40, 47% of the total workforce. Um, and that's a, that's a head-scratching reality, particularly as women have um, a very unique role to play in manufacturing and in my time on factory floors and I often grab the women who I you know make a make a chance to, to talk with them um, because of the you know I'm interested in the role that they're playing on their factory floor and they'll tell me firsthand you know oh my gosh I end up leading the communications between our quality engineers and our mechanical engineers um, in terms of you know some of the outputs that we're analyzing a data set or looking at a machine breakdown, and, and and I'll hear, yeah, that's just a role that women tend to play uh, here on here on the factory floor, and and, and why that narrative is is important, Jim, is is really um, in some ways because as we look at gender and as we're having this conversation here today, this this is also about celebrating our differences and what a confluence of voices represents, and so. Um, I, I certainly am shining a light on on the role of gender in uh, the future of manufacturing and the current um, place of manufacturing. Several uh, several months ago, uh, we were invited to the uh, German consulate here in uh, New York, New York, uh, to be uh, broadcasting a transcontinental discussion between the German manufacturers and educators and uh, American educators and manufacturers. And it was really quite an interesting story. I mean, we all know that uh, Europe had the apprenticeship programs for eons. They now have in Germany what they call a dual educational system, which requires a mandatory two days a week for students, boys and girls, to go for vocational training. And uh, three days a week, uh, they go for you know, traditional uh, you know, liberal arts uh, type training. And what they found is that at the end of the, their educational cycle, that unlike here in the United States, 
unlike in the United States, that um, um, the training is is not done like it should be, and we are having uh, unemployment numbers in the group of uh, the 18 to 24, 25 years old at around 28%. And yet these dual educated students in Germany, their unemployment rate is about 8%. So uh, obviously there's, uh, there's good, good points for the uh, vocational training, not only for boys, but also for girls. And um, I, I think that uh, that's something that we should be looking to do here. Uh, There's also one other point that was brought up, and, and I, I don't mean to make this sound like a gotcha, but they found that the term blue collar had a very negative connotation, and that especially with parents. You don't want your kids to be a blue collar. You want them to be a three-degree college graduate and uh, you don't want them to be known as blue collar. Have you run into any of that? Yeah, I mean, I can, I can certainly talk to that. Yeah, you I think you I, like, I think you may be able to more than than I can based on the information I have available to me. Yeah. So this is Haley Stevens again um, on behalf of UI Labs, which houses the. Uh, Digital Manufacturing and Design Innovation Institute located in Chicago. We are a public-private partnership consortium comprised of um, industry partners uh, such as GE, Lockheed Martin, Rolls-Royce, um, ITW, Caterpillar, John Deere, as well as over 40 university partners primarily focused on research and, and development uh, projects. And as, you know, as, as, as we look at that question, um, and, and that point, right, about what, what it means to be a manufacturing worker. One of the things that our institute has really led on, and this is, again, as a digital manufacturing and design spectrum, is, is that there is a strong interplay now between, you know, advanced industries, manufacturing technology, computer science, um, uh, computer programming, the ability to code, and what's taking place on factory floors. And you're, you're absolutely right that there's a bias, and this has been well documented and, um, you you know, literature put out by the federal government, the President's Council of Advisors in Science and Technology, PCAST, um, put out a report and was saying just that, that there are perception challenges that hamper manufacturing and the on-ramp to, um, to students uh, into, into manufacturing careers. And, and in short, and one of the things that we do with our 95,000 square foot facility located right here in downtown Chicago is, is we are an innovation center. And we open our doors to the public and to students and the like to show that this is manufacturing and this is cool and this is hands-on. It is not, you know, what so often is described as dirty, dark, and dangerous. And there's also, you know, besides just what our, our institute is doing, there's a host of national actors. You know, there's a Fab Lab TV show now, which is all focused on innovation and making and manufacturing and also women. Um, and what manufacturing means for um, female students that, you know, might be looking at this as a career. And so, yes, there's work that all of us need to do in terms of 
rewriting that perception challenge. And, and we understand where that, that has come from. It, you know, has come from a little bit of a battered history and the, you know, track record of seeing some jobs go overseas. But the manufacturing today is directly tied to the technology companies of the future and the technology companies that are writing our economic ticket as a country. Um, and, and frankly, uh, responsible for some of our, of our global competitiveness. Amanda, um, to bring in some of uh, Haley's comments and also your paper, um, what did you find in terms of in blue-collar communities, what boys and girls were doing in high school, and in terms of what courses they took and what courses they didn't take? Sure. Um, and so... That's actually one reason we wanted to focus in on these communities that had the jobs available because, you know, with, you know, less vocational training offered now, these are communities where there's still a demand for these kinds of jobs and this kind of training. And so we expected to see that these schools would be more likely to offer that kind of training. And it kind of gives us a window in to, you know, if this kind of training is expanded um, in areas with these jobs, you know, what kind of uh, outcomes we might expect. And we did see that these high schools were more likely to offer, they offered more blue-collar courses than, you know, high schools in other areas. Um, and boys especially were more likely to take these blue-collar courses. They took um, more of them than boys in other communities. Girls took slightly more um, of the courses, but they definitely did not invest in these courses like the boys did. Um, and, you know, the particularly troubling thing we found, you know, it wasn't that there's something wrong with this blue-collar training. It was the fact that a lot of these schools were then offering less academically rigorous courses. Um, so it kind of was a trade-off where they were offering more of this vocational training, but without, you know, the, the strong academic courses to support um, students who may want to pursue, you know, other paths and go to college. And so that was something we saw where um, – boys and girls are both less likely to take academically rigorous courses in these communities. And um, for boys, they often went into these blue-collar jobs after high school and did quite well because they had been, you know, trained for these jobs. And because the girls were not investing in these courses um, and not pursuing these jobs, they also graduated without the, you know, academic background that they might need to go to college. And so they were less likely to go to college and more likely to end up um, either not working at all or working in low-wage service jobs instead of in these higher-paying blue-collar jobs. Um, even though they had the opportunities, you know, to take these courses, they weren't um, taking advantage of them like the boys. And um, I think part of that does hearken to this perception, especially, you know, historically of women in these blue-collar jobs, um, and, you know, historically women have been in lower-paying positions within blue-collar industries and have had negative, you know, experiences over the past 100 years or so. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, is really hard to address and something that's really hard to shake when it's so, you know, has such a long history, even if things, you know, are changing now as far as um, – you know, making these opportunities available to women and helping them take advantage of them um, in these communities where these are the jobs, the best jobs out there for them. 
Okay, and Haley, the the programs that you're designing on a regional and national basis, are they addressing these kinds of issues, or are they addressing uh, how do I get uh, people uh, digitally ready for uh, tomorrow's uh, uh, workplace? And what who would come to you and say, gee, I need your services, if you can answer those things for me? Yeah, absolutely, and and, and th- thanks for the question. You know, it, it's certainly in terms of the first two questions, it's it's absolutely a, a mix of of both um, that we are looking at. Um, you know, leading in a way that uh, is is serving as a utility partner to a vast network of stakeholders, be it you know regional economic development organizations to workforce investment boards to community colleges to manufacturing extension partnership centers. You know, we are we are not a competitor, but we are a utility partner representative of a transformation sweeping over the field of manufacturing that allows them to start to answer the questions of effective uh, workforce development training, manufacturing engagement, and and education services. And so one of the things that we have nicely led on is we are um, creating a digital manufacturing and design 101 specialization in in partnership with Coursera, uh, which is the leading provider, um, the world's leading provider of massive open online courses. And so with um, our partners, we're creating a set of online courses that starts to define digital manufacturing and get people and, you know, if it's workers or students, an understanding of, of manufacturing. And so what we're doing is we're working with community uh, career and technical education institutions, community colleges, um, our university partners, other um, um, small and medium-sized manufacturing um, service centers to be made aware of these courses and to use them um, as they see fit and, and to use it for their own staff and in their um, resourcing of, of manufacturers. And so the way we sort of onboard with people is, you know, there's there's a few opportunities in this kind of workforce development conversation and and, and in particular it's, it's undergirded by the plight that we, we want more women and we need to change the perception of manufacturing, well, workforce development gets done at the state, uh, local, and regional levels. And so what our institute has done is we've formed chapters um, working with um, Rockford, Illinois, and Quad Cities, Illinois, to start, um, and then moving out into other parts of the country like Colorado and Texas and, and New York. And by forming those regional partnerships that are designed around the supply chain, that are designed around communities that have a specialization or a skill set in that way, this allows us to meet regions where they're at. So in terms of that phone call, um, we've got a a, a variety of ways in which we um, onboard members. We do a lot of work with um, women in manufacturing in particular. You know, they're organized nationally and at state state levels as well. And so we've spent time with um, the Kentucky Women in Manufacturing chapter as well as the Illinois um, Women in Manufacturing chapter and and has um, attended and spent time at their um, national conference. Um, which 
Last year was held in Minneapolis, and this year is taking place in Nashville. And for anyone listening, particularly you women, I would suggest that you look up women in manufacturing and um, consider attending their national conference in September in Nashville. Um, it is it is truly one of the best networks and um, um, conferences I have participated in with very innovative ideas. But when companies and, and these types of partners call us, you know, we are, by writ of our design, a collaboration platform. I mean, when's the last time you saw somebody bringing competitors like Caterpillar and John Deere together over workforce development or research technology in a various domain? And so that's a kind of a good example of how we bring people together. And, then, and of course, you know, we're creating tools and providing services and bringing people together to answer some of these challenging questions. Clearly, Women in Manufacturing is a great organization. And uh, Lou was at that conference in Minneapolis, and, and Manufacturing Talk Radio did a lot of interviews there. Um, Amanda, I want to go back to you in this paper, because it's, something here alarms me, particularly in the in the communities where the preponderance of jobs is in what we would call blue-collar work, mm -hmm. for, the, for the old terminology of it. But uh, you have males and females going through high school where the high school is offering a lot of vocational training courses and not as many advanced courses. So the women aren't as interested in the vocational training, but they really don't have the academic opportunity in the advanced courses, are we setting them up for failure? I mean, I feel like they're on a path where they come out of high school where, you know, we really control their education, not like college where they get to pick their own path. They're not prepared for college. And it sounds like this is kind of a, uh, an unfortunate outcome of the high school system. Where, where am I wrong? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's one of our main points is that, you know, it's not it's not the fact that these high schools are offering vocational training that's, you know, harming women's chances. It's really this dual, um, this curricular trade-off between offering more vocational but then relaxing their academic offerings um, on the other hand. And so mm -hmm. I, I think you're exactly right that, it is, you know, setting up women, you know, putting them kind of between a rock and a hard place where, you know, they're they're not pursuing these um, blue-collar courses. And, you know, we can't speak to why they're not doing that. It may be that, you know, counselors are steering them toward other types of courses or, you know, parents. Um, we really don't – we really can't say. Um but the fact is, is that they're not taking them, and then they don't have other options left available to them. Right. Sounds like they could really get stuck. You know, we're going to take a quick commercial break here, but before we do, Haley, I know that you have a, a relative hard stop at 1 o'clock. I don't know if you're yeah. going after the commercial break, but I wanted to thank you for joining us on the show, and if somebody wants to get a hold of you or the Institute, where do they go? Please visit us at www.dmdii.org, Digital Manufacturing and Design Innovation Institute, and we have a great system in which you can write your comments, and they usually end up right in my inbox, and I respond to people all the time, dmdii.org. It was so nice to talk with all of you this afternoon, and thank you for inviting me. 
Haley, thank you for being on the show. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back after these words from our sponsors. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason ThomasNet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to ThomasNet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Well, Lou, this is a a stunning conversation. Uh, Amanda's paper here is uh, quite revealing and certainly concerning for uh, young females going through the high school system in uh, blue-collar communities being prepared in a way where they really have an option of going into manufacturing or going into college or some other coursework. Um, what's your sense of what we've heard so far? Well, you know, I brought it up earlier about, uh, you know, the German dual educational system where uh, they're giving, uh, given not choices but options in that they have to take courses in vocational training and they have to take courses in uh, higher education. And here, when they get through their four or five years of uh, that type of training, uh, they can clearly make a decision as to what their likes or dislikes are. And also, during that same time period, the parents are being somewhat influenced by seeing how their child is reacting and responding to either vocational or uh, liberal arts. it, it certainly is better than going, being forced into going to college and running up a, a $200,000 debt that's going to take 30 years to get out from under. So uh, my my take on this is that, uh, you know, it's, it's great that they have all these uh, reports and information and uh, conferences, but um, I, I think that 
there, there needs to be uh, more emphasis put on uh, the parents and also the kids, uh, like Manufacturing Day does, which is only a once-a-year event, where they're showing the kids that manufacturing or a lot of manufacturing is not dark and dirty and dangerous. Yes, I would agree. Amanda, where to from here? I mean, the conclusions of your paper uh, paint out uh, kind of a difficult picture for young women going through high school in blue-collar communities. Is there a corrective action that your paper recommends or uh, another study that says this is what you need to do to balance the equation? You know, that's that's a really it's a, something that's really hard to address. Um, you know, one of our main suggestions, um, you know, out of the information available to us, all that we can really say is that, you know, this is what is going on, um, and we can't, you know, we're not in a place to really identify the exact corrective action. That's um, obviously for uh, policymakers um, to try and figure out, you know, what kind of mechanism would help address these inequalities. One thing we can say is that, you know, when we're thinking about ramping up vocational education, to not do so at the expense of the academic training being available as well. And I think um, Lou made a good point in that, you know, with the German model, there are options. And so it's that they get the academic training, they get the vocational training, and then they're prepared to go either way, um, depending mm -hmm. on, you know, where which way they want to go. And I think that's one of the you know, main points that we want to make is that, you know, to keep the academic options available, to not downplay academics when you're bringing in the vocational options. And I think in the U.S. it makes it a lot harder because of how large and varied the country is. Um, you know, Germany's much smaller, um, and the school system, you know, not quite as varied across the country as we have, you know, here in the U.S., as far as the kinds of course offerings um, and preparation that different students are getting. And so it makes it hard for people in these communities to compete with students that are coming from other areas that may offer very little vocational training and all very you know, rigorous academic courses so that if these you know, students wanted to go on to college, they're competing with students that have had much better preparation. Um, and so how to address that um, in a way that serves local economic interests, national economic interests, um, and gives these students, you know, options for success in the labor market. It's it's something it, I you know I'll admit it's going to be re I think it's really difficult to figure out you know what the linchpin is you know what is it that can be done. Um, our our simplest recommendation is just that in introducing. Um, these new um, new vocational programs, especially you know, pairing up with um, local industries, and um, some states are relaxing then academic graduation requirements, and um, I think that that's you know a dangerous kind of a dangerous road to take in light of how this might affect women when they do things like that. Uh, Amanda, what's I, the compensation differential? There must be there must be a pay issue, and you mentioned getting stuck in low-pay service. Right, jobs, right, and so that that is one of the things to where you know the other options available to women in these areas are lower paying than um, what these blue-collar men are making, um, and so compared to 
other you know communities that don't rely as heavily on blue collar work, um, these women are at um, a wage disadvantage compared to the men in their communities, and also compared to women in other in other communities. Um, and so they're suffering in terms of their wages because of the kinds of jobs that they end up getting um, because, you know, they, they aren't going into these blue-collar jobs and they aren't going on to college. So they do end up in these kind of low-wage service jobs and end up um, suffering in terms of wages compared to the men. One of the things that I'm uh, become aware of, and of course it's in it's in your uh, paper as well, that much of what we're talking about has to do a lot with uh, geographical location of certain types of industries. And let me paint a, a very vivid one. For example, mm-hmm. the coal industry in uh, right. Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and so on. Clearly, you're not going to have a lot of uh, women going into that industry. Uh, that said, what a lot of uh, state uh, uh, state agencies that are beginning to look to bring in other industries, and so that it's not so specific, for example, to be the coal industry. Uh, they're ta- mm-hmm. I'm reading a book now, and we're going to have a, our guests on about this: how to fix the uh, the Rust Belt areas of this country and of Europe, where we bring in more technology and co-mingle the the blue-collar and the white-collar into the same community where you can have uh, diversity uh, amongst uh, men, women, either going into manufacturing or going into uh, technology and in many cases technology and manufacturing is already being being blended into one uh, and I can think of one right now uh, uh, robotics uh, robotics is manufacturing but it's all very high-tech high-tech stuff so what I'm seeing is that geography really plays a large role in this um, when the aerospace oh, yeah. Yeah, when when aerospace was invited to go down south to South Carolina, North Carolina, the states gave them all kinds of uh, great uh, uh, real estate incentives, tax incentives, and they had a good workforce. They had a workforce that was willing to train and learn new uh, uh, skills. And uh, uh, Tim and I met some uh, people at a conference in uh, California, who there were there were many women in the aerospace industry uh, in manufacturing, so there there is I think where I think part of the issue may be the geographic location of these various uh, industry sets. Yeah, that, and uh, that's, that's definitely something um, that we wanted to bring you know to the story is um, I think a lot of people who don't live in these areas. Um, forget that they exist Uh, and you know uh, people who live you know in the sub a lot of people you know are concentrated in the the suburbs or in um, these more um, white collar type communities and really think that it's a thing of the past that you know there isn't any manufacturing or mining or you know these kinds of towns left Um, we've encountered people who say you know well there's no such thing as company towns anymore and we said well you know it's (laughs) 
there there are towns that rely very heavily on one particular industry and uh you know Absolutely. i i come from one of these kinds of towns and i i know that they exist um and that you know a lot of people rely on these local industries for their jobs and so we wanted to kind of ex- exploit the fact that there are these concentrations of industries um where this kind of what people think is you know this nostalgic old school vocational training you know they think it's a thing of the past but this these are places where it's still happening um and it's definitely due to geography and this tension between what their local labor markets demand versus what the kind of more global um you know labor market might demand and so when people right. are talking about jobs all the good jobs require college degrees you know thinking overall in the US that that might be true that the highest paying jobs require college degrees but in these towns those aren't the jobs that are there and those are not the needs of the local community and so i think that high schools have you know kind of a a hard time of balancing then what do they focus on um do they focus on training students for the local economy or training them to be competitive if they you know wherever they went um and that's this tension between you know preparing for college and preparing for jobs in the local economy and when those aren't the same <laughs> that's when you run into this issue of you know kind of is someone going to suffer um when these local needs kind of conflict with maybe the narrative of what the you know more national needs in the economy are right. with um, increasing technology and especially you know math and technology skills um and so um i i think it's really interesting thinking about the you know parts of manufacturing and blue collar work that do integrate those two things and that that might be the way of the future and if you know if if that is is so then you know it might help resolve some of these tensions when the vocational training itself you know may have to integrate more um academically rigorous training um for for those types of jobs as well let me let me ask you a question and it, it kind of almost border borderlines on a political question but it's not meant to be <laughs> uh we we hear uh all of the uh, uh talking heads and the politicians talking about bringing jobs back to america well right. we have a problem we have a problem here we we have three and a half million vacant jobs in manufacturing in this country right now that mm-hmm. manufacturers can't fill uh we bring back jobs now we have brought back and I'll just pick a number we pick 2 million so we have two more million jobs that we could fill so it's five and a half million uh where are we getting them from where this this political uh drum beating about bringing jobs back where are we getting the people from there are what what's the number Tim 92 million people that are able bodied to work and they're not so That's we need number, to yeah. train right range. Yeah. So we need to we need to retrain uh some workers who are older or not interested in doing their jobs anymore, career change, and perhaps go into a manufacturing sector. And 
my feeling is that the states have to be really a lot more involved in it today than the federal government because nothing that doesn't seem to be getting done at the federal level of a major nature that at least we know about. Uh, the right. states are doing, I think, a better job and could do a better job. Well, and that's the thing what, with um, part of, I mean, actually part of what motivated this is some of uh, President Obama's speeches at um, in manufacturing towns um, talking about this idea that we have jobs available here that pay well, that don't require a college right. degree, and that people but people need training. These are jobs that, you know, you, people do need to be trained for these jobs, and they aren't getting the training. Um, and so I think both sides of the aisle, you know, funny enough, have been talking about this idea of needing to fill mid-skill jobs um, and needing to, you know, train, especially when, you know, only 50% of students that start college degrees actually finish them. You know, what do they, yeah, what do they do um, whenever they, you know, aren't going to be ones that are finishing their college degrees. And so um, I think, you know, oh, President Obama's had this, the manufacturing institutes, I'm sure you know about a few that, you know, he started up with, you know, pairing um, with local sure. industries. But it's definitely been more on the state, um, the side of the states, passing legislation to um, change uh, graduation requirements, to start up apprenticeship programs, um, even um, more on a more local level, starting up uh, programs with local businesses, offering to, you know, partner to make sure that schools are offering the training that they would need for um, their workers. Um, and I, and um, that's kind of what motivates us to start looking at this in the first place is that, you know, states are starting to um, – to go that way and to start looking at what's available in the local economy and here are these jobs that are available and these employers need workers and they need trained workers. And so thinking about um, the issues that might come up in, you know, trying to address these local needs and uh, that's, we just really wanted to shine a light on it. You know, the fact that these, these are jobs that are, you know, male dominated and that's something that just, you know, we would hope um, the results of our study uh, lead policymakers to keep in mind when they are talking about offering this training and relaxing graduation requirements um, and just making sure that they're um, giving students options um, whenever they're um, introducing this kind of training. But, you know, I agree that, you know, based on everything I've read, there, you know, people are saying that there there are jobs available. It's not that they've gone away, but, um, you know, they are here and, uh, yeah, who, who can fill them and it's, it, you need trained workers to fill them. Right. Amanda, right. Amanda Just, what are, uh, programs like youth apprenticeship, Carolina, urban skilled trades connection, jumpstart, uh, what are they doing, uh, in particular, as you mentioned them in your paper? Right, and so these are kind of the programs I'm talking about um, with, you know, offering students the kind of, tr you know, partnering with schools and partnering with students to, um, I think one of the things that the German system has done well that the American system is not in vocational training is apprenticeships and matching students with jobs um, because it's really, 
useless to give students vocational training for jobs that aren't out there or um, to offer courses that aren't going to help students in the labor market. And, right. um, and so by, you know, partnering them up with the jobs that actually are there and by kind of, you know, almost, you know, guaranteeing them a position with this um, company whenever they leave, it's that they're then investing in training that can help them um, get one of these jobs. They're not investing in obsolete training or in training in a field where there are no jobs available in their community. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, the German model has done well, that the U.S. model is not. Um, and, you know, especially with, I think that might be some of, you know, previous research has shown that's part of the problem with vocational training and um, women in particular is that they may be more likely to take vocational training that um, isn't going to lead to good jobs in their community because of um, the kinds of jobs actually available. And so if previous, you know, previous research has shown that maybe, you know, if women have different preferences for the kinds of vocational training they want, or if counselors or parents are steering them toward more what they believe are more female-appropriate jobs like the home economics training or, um, you know, lower-paying um, healthcare-type work, um, and then they get out and there are these skills don't give them, you know, an actual job in their labor market. You know, they would have been better served probably investing in something that um, where local employers have been guiding kind of the training, um, you know, we really can't speak to whether these programs are are good or bad. <laughs> I don't think a lot of them have been around long enough to uh, see what their real effects are, and we don't have the data on that. Um, right. But we do know that, you know, research has shown the best returns to vocational training are when it's occupation-specific and when um, – you actually get a job in the field that you uh, trained for. And I think that's one of the main things um, about making sure students are getting something out of vocational training when they do pursue it. You know, these are the things we know um, that data shown matter, that they need, you know, training for the jobs that to make sure they can actually get a job in that field. Amanda, if somebody wants to download this paper, where do they go to get it? Yeah, so it's um, available through the American Sociological Review. Um, it is a subscription um, journal, but um, most libraries would have subscriptions, and especially if people have uh, access to universities, um, they could get it that way. Um, and they can also um, you know, feel free to contact me or one of my co-authors to discuss any of our findings. Um, April Sutton, uh, Dr. April Sutton is at the Cornell Population Center at Cornell University. And then Dr. Muller and I are both at the University of Texas Population Research Center um, and the Department of Sociology. And so they can definitely um, hop on either of those websites and um, contact us via email if they have any questions. Great. Well, we appreciate you having uh, joined us on the show today and sharing your paper with us. It's really very insightful, and we encourage all of our listeners to go find the paper and download it and give it a read because it, although it's a research paper, it's uh, well done and it contains a lot of great information. Amanda, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me.
Thank you, Amanda. Okay. Well, Lewis, uh, it's Kim. been a uh, been an interesting discussion. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, actually uh, it brings together a lot of the shows and a lot of the people. Uh, that we've talked to about these topics in the past, and it kind of brings it together uh, and uh, get some uh, uh, statistics to see uh, you know, how it's really going. Uh, I, I think that uh, conclusions and in, in ways of trying to cure the issue, I'm not sure that they're there yet, but uh, I, I think it's something that they just have to keep plugging away and uh, keep looking for solutions, as we have seen other companies uh, where they band together and create their own uh, dual training programs between companies. For example, uh, uh, what was it, Steel Company? Yes. S-T-I-H-L, correct. Yeah, Yeah, where they joined with three or four other companies and created their own training school, a vocational school which I thought was one of the coolest stories that we've heard. And yeah, it was a worked great very, idea. Yeah, it worked very successfully. So uh, that being said, uh, next week uh, we are going to have Brad Holcomb uh, from the Institute of Supply Management giving us his uh, monthly report and the PMI number. And uh, hopefully last month the number was up. Uh there were some disputes in the uh, in, in the trades about whether our numbers are really going up or down, at least between the economists. And uh, but let's see uh, how uh, how Brad uh, thinks it's going to be. Frankly, from our All Metals and Forge Group company, we are beginning to see that there is a uh, turnaround and. Uh, and maybe everyone is coming back to work after their vacations and so on. So we're beginning to see an uptick here as well. So uh, that said, Tim, it's all yours. And then uh, following Brad, we're going to have on that same show uh, Chris Keel, who is with Armada Corporate Intelligence, and he is an economist. So we can talk to him about uh, the disparities between reports. We hope that you'll listen to Manufacturing Talk Radio next Tuesday at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. And we appreciate you listening today. Send in your comments. If you have any questions, to info at mfgtalkradio.com. You can find all of our previous shows at mfgtalkradio.com. And we'll uh, look forward to having you listen to us next week. Thanks for being with us. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.